sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Hello and how's it? Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for downloading this episode. Cheers for the reviews, the ratings. I hope you're hitting that subscribe button. Make sure you share it with some friends if you think they can benefit from the show. Guys, if you didn't listen to last episode with Cam McCall, make sure you do so. He is so positive. You can learn a lot from him. He's my co-host in the Crankworx broadcast studio. Just a true legend of the sport. On to this week. Well, another legend of the sport. None other than Brian Lopes. Flying Brian Lopes. He started BMX at the tender age of four, went on to be a pro as a teen, and then he moved to mountain biking, winning four world titles and amassing a lot of race wins. Well, he is ultra competitive. He's never had a coach. He's actually pretty self-taught. So we dig into all that and more. So guys, enjoy this week's episode. We normally get some good stuff before I tell you we're recording. You have, you have your you have your sweatshirt on and I don't have anything on. And classic <laughs> lopes he has a shirt on. Gotta keep it going, right? That's a perfect way to start this. I don't even need an intro. I'm sitting down with six time World Cup overall champ, four time world champ, and maybe the oldest guy to insist on not wearing a shirt. But I guess if you work out as consistently and hard as you, you can do that. So welcome to the show, Brian Lopes. How are we doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm just on my second cup of coffee, trying to wake up. I only have my shirt off because, like I said, I just crawled out of bed like 20 minutes ago. So uh, you're embracing retired life. I'm embracing retirement. Who's retired? You're retired. I've retired I from racing. Have you finally retired from racing or not? No, never retired from racing. I, I did one race this year before all this... Uh, lockdown started and races started getting canceled i got i got one in under my belt keep the streak going uh, that's awesome you can take that off so you're still an active racer yeah i wouldn't say super serious by any means but uh i got conned into doing one so you know you know me if i show up to race i gotta at least give it my all no that's what i always notice about you i mean maybe in the prior years you were well, you have to be over-seriously and selfish to win all the titles you did, but I always knew later in it, if you rocked up at Crankworks, there was trouble because you were going to take it as seriously as you ever did. You know, it didn't matter age, it didn't matter, you know, how much preparation you really got at home. So that was always pretty cool to see. And Well, you took it pretty serious that one year too. You beat me. You jacked up my, my streak on A-line. <laughs> I I was wondering if I was going to bring that up, but I thought, you know, this show's about the guests, so it's not really for me to poke fun at ruining your winning streak. But since you brought it up, yeah, how did it feel, you know, getting properly beat by a youngster that wasn't meant to win that race? I know. Where did you pull that one out of your ass? I don't, I don't <laughs> understand that. <laughs> hey, you know what? If I... Uh... If I'm going to get beat by somebody, you're not a bad guy to get beat by. There's there's some guy, you know how it is. There's some guys you don't want to get beat by or you, or you hate getting beat by. But, uh, you know, yourself, PD, et cetera. I don't know. You know, a bunch of your friends, you know, that you like. 
not so bad. Yeah, I always thought that someone asked me who I didn't like getting beat by, and I was on the spot, so I couldn't think of anyone because they definitely were. You know, there were people that kind of grated you. Well, we've clearly jumped straight in it. Have you got people that popped to mind that you, I mean, you obviously respected them, but you didn't want to get beat by them. Do, do names pop and pop to mind? Mm. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a couple of guys that, you know, back in the day, you had, had a little grudges against, you know, somebody like Kareem Amor. You know, I think I think a lot of people didn't want to get get beat by him because he was kind of dirty back in the day. So uh, definitely d- didn't uh, didn't like competing against him back in the day. But you know, that's in the past now. I, I think I like Kareem now. He's he's a good guy. But uh, yeah, I'd say he was one for sure. There was a couple others maybe that you know talked a little bit of smack and for sure didn't want to get beat by those guys. Um, I, actually, I heard a uh, I heard an interview with with Graves like I don't know within the last year or two, and he said that I was I was somebody he didn't like getting beat by, and that he uh, you know we kind of had a little rivalry Graves and I for a while, but yeah I think that's because we both really wanted to win and we were both we both had like a lot of the same skills. I mean he was super powerful and good gate starter and just great all-around biker and you know I was the old guy and he was trying to knock me off and I didn't want the young guy coming in so yeah it was that constant like uh, it's that rivalry that you needed to have I mean I think him wanting to beat you is because if he knew if he beat you he was going to be the best you were the, the best at the time so that's interesting that he had you know he's he spoke about that and for the listeners, obviously, I I, um, I was a fan of the sport for for many years before I got over there, and I and I finally got to meet you, and and it was quite nice living in SoCal, hanging out. But for the listeners that don't know Brian Lopes, which is crazy, then you need to start doing some googling because when I started going through this this result sheet of yours, and you were inducted into the Hall of Fame, and you've got the most World Cup wins for a male, say let's say in, say in gravity side. Educate the listeners on where it all began, you know, from the BMX and then how you transitioned into mountain biking. Yeah, uh, I started racing BMX at four and a half, you know, before you were born and probably most of your listeners were born. And um, yeah, raced all the way up until, I guess, probably like 19 is when I first got on a mountain bike and did a race. Um, Actually won a GT Zaskar at the ABA Grand Nationals, the the night before the Grand Nationals, they had uh, what they called the Pro Spectacular, and it was a, a race all for prizes. And uh, I can't remember. I think I got like third or something, and, and I won a GT Zaskar, so I came home with a mountain bike, and that was the first mountain bike I ever had. Um, and kind of just started riding that, and then, then I was on Mongoose, um, you know, racing BMX for them. They had a mountain bike team. And yeah, I went to a Big Bear National and then I went to a Mammoth National and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I went there, I raced downhill, cross country, you know, just just did it all. Thought beginning, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a cross country racer. And uh, that was true while I was a racing beginner because uh, I won the beginner cross country races. And then that, that first year I did a few races. I think it was 90, 1990. Two, um, I went to Durango for uh, 
for the national uh, finals. And I was like, oh, man, I, I won those beginner races super easy. I'm going to race expert. And I got smoked. <laughs> so that was, uh, I was a big eye-opener uh, on the cross-country side. And um, that kind of shifted my focus away from cross-country. <laughs> and uh, what about slalom and downhill? You know, if you were highly successful in BMX, quite a different format racing, you know, eight people in a gate. Then you're focusing on one person, say, in slalom or even downhill. That was like singular focus. What was it like transitioning once you'd realized, okay, maybe cross-country is not for me and the the BMX skill set probably helped me in uh, gravity? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I did. I obviously did some downhill racing um, that first year. And then basically the next year, 1993, was I kind of made the decision in the off-season that I was going to try to focus a little more attention to racing mountain bikes and not just BMX, although I still did both at, at that. Um, for a couple, two or three years, I did both. Um, but I started racing downhill and slalom, and I actually like downhill more, um, and I kind of focused more of my attention towards downhill. And so I went into the 1993 season. I was like, okay, I'm racing pro mountain bikes and went to big bear the first national of the year and uh ended up getting fifth and downhill and yeah so i got a podium and was was stoked on that beat out tomac for the last po uh, podium spot and uh then went to the next national and i won the downhill and i was like i was so stoked that i won the, the downhill national there that i ended up not even racing slalom i was like i was kind of you know, BMX, in the BMX days, it was like I would fly out Friday, um, you know, race the weekend, and then fly home a lot of times Sunday night or Monday morning. So I wasn't really used to being gone for a long period of time. So going to a mountain bike race and, you know, being gone for a week or two was, was kind of a long time. Um, so anyways, I, I won that second downhill national, and I was so pumped. I was like, I'm not even racing. I'm not even going to race Solon. I'm flying home. Book my book me a ticket home. Oh, here's a story for you. You asked me for original story, so yeah, book me a ticket home. I upgraded to first class because I was like, hey, you know, I'm killing it. I'm going big time here. And I sat next to a guy named Billy Tracy, who at the time was a sports marketing guy for Oakley. And he just happened to be sitting in the seat next to me in first class, and one thing led to another, and. That was the start of my Oakley contract. So invest invest in upgrading is my word of advice. Yeah, we're going to get to some words of advice <laughs> from a champion mindset that, that you obviously have. And um, so you obviously ball in, you, you spoiled yourself, and a, and a chance meeting on the plane led to, well, yeah, one of your longest, if not your longest sponsors, really, if you think about it, through the mountain bike career. And did you, uh, how did that chance meeting go? Did he ask you, like, what you're doing in first class? And you're like, well, I just started this mountain bike thing and I won. Or did he, you know, how did that go? No, he, he knew who I was and he knew that I won. So that was, that was awesome. And basically just conversation, you know, did, you got a glass sponsor. I want to hook you up. I wanna, let's, let's try to work something out. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And, yeah, so I basically got my contract then, 1993, Oakley. All right, so, I mean, you, you decide to enter pro 
and <laughs> your second race, you end up winning it. Obviously, people must be telling you, you must realize, shit, I mean, I've got a thing in mountain biking here. Like, what what were you thinking then? I was thinking, this is awesome. I, I, I'm... I'm making I'm making more money doing this uh, this mountain bike thing than BMX. So I actually won another national that's that first year too, and um, yeah, I had had pretty good success that first year. So mongoose uh, basically, I think I was making like a thousand bucks a month salary from mongoose racing uh, BMX, and they were like, "Hey, you want to keep doing the mountain bike thing?" I was like, "Yeah." So my salary doubled. I started making two thousand a month the next year, and I still raced BMX. Um, and then I did good that second year, and they're like, "You want to keep doing?" It? Yeah. Then my my salary like went up again, and I was like, "Shit, this is awesome!" You know, like I was kind of double dipping there for a while because I was racing BMX and mountain bikes. But by 1995, I was basically phasing out BMX because um, I still did some races that year, but kind of each year I did less and less BMX. And 95, I won the, the dual slalom and the downhill national title. And yeah, after that, I pretty much hung up the BMX bike and uh, focused on mountain bikes. Well, you're known for your competitive nature and I've, I've been around you enough and I've got some stories of just silly things we'd try to do in airports just to keep that competitive nature going was it always like that do you think it's something you trained do you believe you were born with it where, where does it come from mm, i think yeah i think i was just born with it i just uh don't like to lose obviously um i mean nobody likes to lose but i guess I just, uh, yeah, I think I was just born with it, and I don't know, it's fun being competitive, right? Like, especially in those times when you and I were traveling together and on the team, right? Like, there was a lot of downtime, and I I like to try to keep training fun, too, and, like, all those little silly games, you know? I mean, they're, they're kind of training also, right? We're seeing how many stairs we could jump up, and if we could jump off buildings and over bushes and all that stuff. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's the same in the sport, right? If you see somebody jump a jump that you haven't jumped, you're like, Oh, if he can do it, I could probably do it. So yeah, I was always trying to push you guys, see how many stairs you could jump and all that kind of funny stuff. Yeah. For the listeners at home, I mean, life on the road can be a bit tedious and lots of airports and stuff and layovers and things like that. We were lucky to, to spend time as, as teammates later in your career and early in mine. And, yeah, it was almost something I learned from you that keeping it fun, but as well as like, let me try push you. If I'm going to do six stairs, you got to try do seven because if I don't push you, you're not going to push yourself. So that seemed to really come out there. And then you talk about competitive and not liking to lose. Is there a time that losing hurts more than like the happiness you get from winning? Like, does that is that a driving factor? I think in champions, that's becomes quite a thing you can see it you know with the michael jordan documentary you can see he just hated losing so much that it drove him to train hard it drove him to find something to get that extra gear to win again yeah yeah i think for sure um there's definitely like a period in my racing career where the loot the the losses were um I don't know, almost like bigger news than the wins just because 
like I was winning a lot for a while. And, you know, I, I think, I mean, I expected myself to win and others did too. So when I didn't win, it was, it hurt, it hurt more, like, uh, not just myself, but I like, I felt like I was letting other people down too. So yeah, I mean, those are definitely, you got to learn from your losses too. And I, and I definitely learned from losses and, and races where I, where I almost lost because I was actually, I think, overly confident. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, everybody's going to lose sooner or later, right? You can't win all the time. And I think it's just how, how you take those losses and how you learn from them and build to, to try to keep bettering yourself. And what did it look like when you would take a loss where you were, say, expected to win or you knew you could win? Like, what did the next week of self-talk look like? Or did you just bury yourself in training? Because, I mean, we didn't know. We just saw you at the next race and you were back on it. So what did that look like? Well, I think, you know, if it was um, something specific, I mean – if you, if you made a mistake, right, like if you got a bad gate, maybe you, you practice more gates that week. Um, but, you know, I also try to not like dwell on it too much and like get too bummed out because, I mean, at the end of the day, it is just a race, right? And it, and it sucks and it hurts for that time. But I also, um, you know, just kind of brush it off and, and let it go and, and try to keep moving forward. Um, so I wouldn't say there was like too much, you know, difference in during that week, you know, just maybe try to, like I said, do a little bit more gate practice if the gates were a little off or something like that, but not, nothing too, too drastic. I think also I like it was what I was doing was working for me. So I also like to not change it up too much. And, uh, you know, I see that a lot today, like just with, you know, gym workouts and different training techniques and all this stuff, you know, people are doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and I get it, you know, some people, everybody's different, right? Like some people like to look for different things to do in the gym or they don't like to be like on the same routine in the gym every week. Um, but I think sometimes the routine is good because then you can kind of see if you're, if you're making gains, you know, like whatever, if you're doing squats or if you're doing power cleans or whatever that, that exercise may be, if you're doing that for a couple months straight, then you're kind of seeing if you're, if you're gaining uh, strength on those moves, if you're changing them up every week, you know, then it's, it's kind of hard to know, but then it keeps a little fresh. So I, I think it just depends on the person. Yeah, but what I'm hearing is you didn't seem to dwell too much on, say, the bad races or some mistakes. You know, you, you it seems like you like you know there's another race coming up and you've got another chance to perform. And you've always been self, let's call it self-taught, or, or you coach yourself from what I remember and what I've seen. Can you talk a bit about that? You haven't really had coaches throughout most of your career. Is that true? No, I never, I never had a coach. Um... I mean, when I was in high school, we had, you know, I had gym class and, uh, I, you know, I had a coach there, I guess, for a couple of years, my, like my junior and senior year in, in high school, I was, again, racing BMX and BMX was 
you know, a sport where power was important. So I, uh, I took those classes kind of serious. I actually, my senior year, I was on the weightlifting team and would like go to weightlifting competitions and stuff like that. Um, but no, never a specific coach for racing. Yeah, and how did you not doubt what you were doing? It seems like you just had this innate self-confidence with your routine. Because I remember how hard you worked and you would go to the gym a few times a week and we'd go dirt jumping in between and, and whatever it may be. Yeah, um, well, I don't know. Like I said before, I was I was doing pretty good, so I figured it was working. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if it works, don't fix it, right? Um, but... Well, there was a time when I was on GT, um, our team manager, Dean, he was a, a sports psychologist and physiologist, and he would always tell me, like, we would go to these races, and I would remember, like, practicing for, you know, a duel or something, and he'd be like, hey, stop, you know, like, we got whatever we had, you know, an hour or two hours of practice before the race, and like most of us, we would just, like, want to take the whole hour or two to practice, and he would like pull me aside, you know, whatever, a half hour into practice and be like, dude, you've practiced enough. Stop. Like you got everything wired. Save your energy. <laughs> you know? And I'd be like, okay. You know, I just, you know, listen to some advice he would give me. So it's it, I think it's good to have a coach and somebody that knows you and how you work mindset wise and, you know, physically and uh, can kind of reinforce like how you're doing and what you need to work on or when you need to just like chill out. Yeah, it seems some people do need it and you're definitely not one that needed like a babysitter to tell you what to do or like you had to do this today. You would maybe even overwork from what I'm hearing. And you did do some coaching. Maybe I'm jumping a bit ahead, but we're on the coaching topic and and you took that work thing and coaching and you were helping some motocross riders, the likes of Cole Seeley and, and Troy Lee the Troy Lee motocross team, what was that like to kind of transition and wear a different hat and maybe mentor down to these athletes? Yeah, that was pretty cool. You know, just being friends with Troy for a real long time, he just, he hit me up out of the blue one day and was like, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I was like, I kind of, you know, questioned it at the, at the beginning because I was like, man, am I really qualified to do this? I don't know. You know, I've always, like you said, you know, I've always coached myself and, um, never had any like specific coach training. So I questioned myself. I kind of reached out to, I mean, not only obviously like my asking Paula, my wife, um, but just other people that were close to me, like, you think I, you think I'm qualified to do this? You think I should, you know, give this a try. And, and everybody was like, yeah, I think, I think you should. I think you're kind of underestimating your knowledge and stuff. So I was like, all right, I'll try it, you know, and uh, that was that was kind of the beginning of it. it. It was fun. It was it was a lot of fun to go to the races, and obviously when the riders did well, um, you know, since we're not really in a big team sport, uh, mountain biking, it was kind of fun to live vicariously through them and see the the joy that they got from winning, and know that you had a small little piece uh, of that success. And what, what do you think you were able to instill in them from that mentor side? What sort of advice do you remember giving to them? I mean, everything, obviously, from, from uh, just the preparation side, um, you know, going to the gym, riding the bikes, resting, eating. I mean, honestly, it was, it was quite a bit of an eye-opener. Um, 
what they didn't know. You know, I, I, I think so. a lot of times we just take certain things for granted. You know, it's like, I'm sure, you know, you, you go teach somebody like some basic mountain biking skills, you know, and it's like, uh, how do you go up a curb? Right. And you're like, how do you go up a curb? It's like, you just go up it. Right. It's super easy, you know? And then you go out with somebody and you're like, Oh wow. Like, man, people really need a lot of help going up curbs. They're not, they're not that skilled, you know? And that was kind of what I saw with a lot of these kids, like a lot of the basic stuff. They didn't even know they didn't know different body parts in the gym, you know, go in there and do like, you know, I'm just making this up, but go in there and do some bench press or something one day. And then the next day you're like doing something else. And they're like, Oh, I thought we did, uh, you know, back yesterday. And you're like, Dude, we did bench press yesterday. Bench press is chest and tries and a little shoulders. Like it was just like kind of things like that. You know, you're like, wow, okay, these guys really don't know too much. So maybe I don't need to really be that smart, right? Like, because <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of guys a lot smarter than me. Yeah, you just got to know a little bit more than others. No, but I think you you undersell yourself. I think all those years of of kind of trial and error yourself is clearly giving you a base. Um, and what, what do you, what would you take away from say the motocross industry and educate someone in mountain biking, downhill gravity, who a listener, you know, what, what do you think we can learn from the motocross industry? Uh, man, what can we learn from the motocross industry? Hmm. Well, I, I would say that I feel like they, they definitely do a lot more testing uh, than we do. Um, you know, it's like, I mean, put it this way. No, very rarely does a rider of, you know, on a top tier team go out to the track without a mechanic. And a lot of times, you know, a suspension guy or an engine guy or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you know, we go, we go ride bikes and go do downhill runs with our buddies, right? Throw the bikes in the back of the, the truck or pedal to the top, whatever, and just do runs. They would never just go to the track and, uh, spin laps without having somebody there with them. Yeah. It seems something that maybe Loic Bruni's brought over a little bit, whether he's taken it from that or not, but he's, you know, he's purpose, he's prepared. And like when he goes to do downhill runs, mostly he's got, Jack is mechanic there and they're they've got something they want to work on and I think that helps and gives you confidence look you've got to keep it fun and do laps and do some skill but you're right I think the motocross guys have more resources but also they always have a purpose when they're at the track whether it's time lapse or testing suspension or bike setup or whatever it may be I think I think preparation and a purpose for training yeah they can definitely bring that over to downhill that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah, it's cool. You know, there's a lot of a lot of good crossover between the two, and it's amazing how many motocross guys like to ride mountain bikes, and mountain bikers like to ride motocross. So it's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, I actually bumped into I don't know him obviously, but Jeff Emig, who was a great champion of his time, and did the commentary. And we were at Des Nation, which is the motocross world champ for the listeners at home. And obviously it's off season and we were poking a bit of fun and having fun at these parties. And, um, and we, we were introduced and he's, and he, and they're, Hey, there's Jeff Ebbing, the motocross. And I'm like, of course I know. And I was a bit of a cocky kid. And he's like, Oh, 
and you're a mountain biker. I'm like, yeah, yeah, mountain biker. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, a little mountain biker, like a oh, cool sport or something. And I was like, well, <laughs> I remember saying something, well, you motocrossers insist on wearing Lycra when you ride motocross. So if anyone's sissy mountain bikers, it's you guys. So I chirped him a little bit because the motocrossers, a lot of them, maybe before you started working, were riding hardtails and Lycra. And I was like, that makes oh, yeah. no sense. It's more dangerous. There's more chance of crashing. Like, why are you not on a trail bike? So that was a bit yeah. odd, but I think it's changing. I think a few guys are getting e-bikes and and a few guys are getting trail bikes. I know like Dean Wilson and the likes of those guys, they'll in the off-season go to Snow Summit and ride downhill, which is cool to see. I think there's a, a bigger respect for mountain bikers and downhillers now from the motocross demographic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, guys have been – I mean, I remember, you know, seeing Millsaps at uh, Big Bear one year, and he was, like, walking down the hill with a broken downhill bike. Like, he snapped the frame in half. I mean, he's a pretty big boy, but, I mean, maybe a, maybe a frame failure, maybe him going a little too hard. But, um, no, to, back to your point, it's, it is pretty funny because guys are still doing that. They're riding in Lycra. And I always laugh because – and I tell them straight up, I'm like, it's so funny – you guys all want to look like roadies and all the mountain bikers want to look like motocross guys. Um, and, and I think you're right that guys are starting to start riding more trail bikes and e-bikes and stuff like that. But um, forever, everybody wanted a full XC bike. And it was like, dude, you're not, you're not racing cross country. I mean, this is a training tool, at least have something that's a little bit more fun and enjoyable to ride on the downhill than getting jackhammered to death. Yeah, not to mention if you do crash, you've got more chance of getting hurt. You've got more chance of crashing on a hotel anyway, which, yeah, that's the irony if they're training and trying to be safe when they're not riding their motocross bikes. Oh, dude, I just I just went to Salt Lake and hung out with uh, Don Maeda from SWAT Moto, and we went for a ride with a couple of young uh lights riders and then also alex ray who races in the in the 450 class and all all three of those not dawn but all three of those guys they all had liker on it was hilarious there but they were all on trail bikes but they all had liker on uh the two lights riders they had just regular tennis shoes on but some of them were sending it pretty good i was impressed oh that's too good so lopes I mean, I started doing some research and it was staggering the amount of wins you have and titles and inducted into the Hall of Fame. I mean, do you look back now on your career and is it a, isn't as surreal or a surprise all that you accomplished thinking back to just climbing on a BMX at four and a half years old? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, never, I never had like dreams of being a professional bike rider or anything like that. It just kind of happened, really. So. Yeah, it's pretty cool to look back on and, uh, yeah, and to see all those wins. I, I remember at some point, like, I grew up racing McGrath, um, Jeremy McGrath, um, the, the king of Supercross, and we raced BMX together. And, and so, you know, during that time, Jeremy was just racking up the Supercross wins. And they were, they were always, you know, watching on TV and stuff. You know, they were always throwing his stats out there. You know, he's got this many wins, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and that was actually kind of inspirational for me, too, because I was like, man, I want 
I want to have some like cool stats like that, you know? So my name's kind of in the record book or gives the younger generation like something to shoot for, you know, like uh, Lopes's record, you know? So you would say he was a peer racing BMX and he's a friend to you now, but he was almost uh, kind of someone that you aspired to be, or like you say, those stats in the back of your mind, like, Hey, you know what? Maybe I should go for more wins so that eventually there's some history books. Yeah. And some goals. I mean, even like look at Supercross today, you know, like they're always showing those stats where McGrath is, where, you know, James is, where Ricky is, where Eli is, you know? And, uh, when you look at those, you're like, wow, MC is like a long ways ahead of all those dudes who are bad dudes. Right. So that kind of puts it in perspective too, for the younger generation who, you know, maybe never saw Jeremy race, you know, but maybe they saw, well, obviously, you know, they're seeing Eli race and they're like, Oh man, Eli's a bad dude. And he's only, you know, halfway to McGrath's record wow, McGrath must have been a really bad dude, you know? So I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. And uh, looking at back at all those things, is there a way to even look at your most memorable race or a race that stands out or a title, a world title? I know you spoke before about winning one at 37, must be pretty memorable. But is there one that, that stands out and go, man, I was really, really looking forward to winning that one and I managed to pull it off? Well, I would say, I mean, probably my first world championship um because that was in Vail. you know it was in it was in the u.s it was literally the same week as 9-11 happened um so that one was probably the coolest just because i mean well first of all i didn't even know if i was going to make it to Vail because all the flights got canceled i was literally supposed to leave that morning and fly and my dad called me i'll never forget i was laying in my dad and laying in bed and my dad called me he's like kid, turn on the news. I, I don't think we're going, we're not jumping on a plane today. And I was like, wow, you know, woke up and watched all this chaos happening. Um, and we just made the call, you know, the next morning, just the family just jumped in the car and we drove to Vail. So that was, you know, definitely a memorable one, you know, going to Vail and winning and, you know, hearing the national anthem during that time was, was pretty special. Um, and then the last one of Fort William, I mean, you know, Fort William, it's, it's an awesome place to race and the crowds are rad. Uh, and I was, you know, getting older. I think I was 37 then. So I think people were starting to kind of write me off a little bit. And I had a, I had a gnarly semi where, um, I, I pulled my foot out of my pedal right out of the start. So I was the last in my semi and, Ended up passing, um, uh, I think Alvarez and who at the time were for Specialized and and Slavic, and uh, to, just to make the final, you know. So I passed those two dudes to make the final, and then I won the final, right? So I mean, the semi was more memorable to me than than the final. But uh, the funny thing is, I think the next year, you know, like I I stopped. I think I did a few World Cups that next year because I had the, the rainbow jersey, but I didn't do, like, the full season. And I think the next year, Alvarez won the World Championships, and then I think the year after that, Slavic won the World Championships. So uh, that was probably, you know, my last title and, and just kind of the the hard semi that I had to get through was probably one, one to remember the most. 
Yeah, and then you say you, you ride a bit in the World Champs jersey, which is, you know, it's such an amazing achievement to have and you did it four times. What is it? What was it like to decide to retire or move away from, say, a full season in competitive racing after all those years, BMX, the Norbers in America, the World Champs, downhill, everything, to then say, you know what, I think I'm going to walk away from this full race series and, and, and being a racer the whole season? I think it was just... It was just time, you know, the, um, I, I didn't, I was kind of, it wasn't, it wasn't my age so much as it was just the motivation. I, I think I just felt there wasn't too much more for me to accomplish in this discipline and, you know, not getting obviously any younger. I wanted to start enjoying some other things. You know, there's so many different disciplines and places to ride and cool things to do in our sport. I wanted to, you know, my whole life was kind of devoted to, you know, to racing four cross and downhill and slalom and all that. I wanted to start doing some other things. And, and, and I also saw the, the, the sport of enduro kind of growing, you know, with, you know, the main demographic of bikes being sold in this five to six inch travel range. Um, I saw, you know, that growing and I figured, you know, it's, it's a good time to, to stop that and maybe start doing some Enduros and, and just kind of laying off as much racing and as much traveling and start enjoying some other things a little bit more on the bike. And when you say enjoy, how would you go to XC Eliminator and call that enjoyable? Well, that wasn't enjoyable. I will, I will definitely agree with you 100% on that. I, I, uh, XC Eliminator uh, was the hardest, for me, physical event that I've ever done in my life. And I tell people that all the time. Like, you know, going a minute and a half to two minutes all out is, is so hard. Um, you know, physically, nobody can go 100% for a minute and a half. It's just physically not possible, but it's short enough where you can't pace yourself. Right? So it's just like <laughs> it's like in the worst like zone ever. Exactly, you're you're redlined for you know that minute and a half, two minutes, hoping hoping you can hold off the people behind you and hoping your motor doesn't blow. And then you got to do it again. So for the listeners that aren't aware, XC Eliminator, four people, a short, short XC loop. Sometimes they had it in the cities. It was as it started, as they tried to start testing it, that you made a jump and, and you won. Did you win the first one? The actual first one they ever ran or just maybe I read up of your first win? Yeah. Yeah, so I did, I did like three of them, I think, the first year. In Europe, um, they were test events, and then the next year they made it official, you know, World Cup series. So I was like, "Gotta go for it, right?" <laughs> <laughs> another another challenge. So uh, yeah, I trained pretty hard. I was forty years old when I went to those, and uh, I won the very first one in Belgium. That was that was awesome. But you said you hated every minute of it, minus winning, well, but, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, um, I will say that, that that one that I won, I was pretty amped to win that. And I think just because it was something new and different, um, you know, there's there's probably not a whole lot of uh, video from all those 
you know, four cross and dual um, races. But I felt I was kind of a guy who, like, I didn't really show a lot of emotion when I won. Like, I wasn't a guy who, like, jumped up and down or, you know, went crazy at the finish line. Um, but I do remember winning that race, and I was, like, I was pretty, you know, maybe gave at least, at least a fist pump or two across the finish line because it, it was hard. Yeah, it was it was hard, and it was kind of like something new that, you know, I set out to, to do, and I did it. Um, but <clears throat> I did. I, I wouldn't say it was that much fun by any means, and, and that was, well, between that and just I didn't like the direction it was going and, courses that they were building and the some of the rules i was just like yeah this is this is not that cool uh, i'll i'll just step back from this event let let it ride well you were never one to shy away from speaking your mind and kind of yeah i guess maybe get yourself in trouble here and there but it seemed like just your competitive nature and you're like hey if i don't like something i'm gonna tell you and let's try fix it from there right yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think, you know, I'm not saying that uh, my my approach was always the best approach. But, yeah, I, I, I spoke my mind, and I don't think anything ever gets changed or fixed if everybody is just quiet and lets things uh, continue on the path that they're going if, if it's not liked. And, um, yeah, so sometimes, you know, you got to speak up. And, I mean, sometimes – you know, it, it wasn't just, it, it wasn't just for me. I mean, I remember, you know, being vocal about things and people would be like, oh, yeah, but this, this course really suits you or that, you know, like whatever, you know, it, you're, you're good at that. And it was like, okay, maybe I am, but that doesn't mean that it's right and that the sport should be heading in this direction just because I'm good at it or just because that course or that whatever suits me like I just don't think it's right I don't think it's how the sport should go or how the track should be or how the rules should be so I would speak up yeah it seems like you're one of the early ones and later in downhill and I've been speaking a little bit you know after the brook incident about a riders union and and I agree sometimes if we said hey the jump is dangerous or you know it's because it's like if I've noticed it's dangerous or I don't like it, it's I'm probably going to be fine because I've noticed it and I'll adjust. But the reason I've brought it up is maybe someone doesn't notice or someone isn't aware that it, you know, maybe it needs a different skill set and they're going to get hurt. But yeah, you 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 like shunned upon for speaking out. I'm like, I'm not doing it for my gain. It's to help everyone yeah. else that doesn't notice. I've noticed it's dangerous, so I'm going to either break or figure it out. But someone's going to not know and they're going to get hurt and. Yeah, it seems like there's not enough voice from the riders or that it's listened to because, I mean, you're there for the riders, putting on a show. And then exactly what you've said, hey, I mean, I'm going to do what at this track anyway, but I still think it's crap. I think that's yeah. key. They should be listening more. Yeah, and, and, you know, just because the top, you know, 20 or 30 guys can handle that whatever jump or section fine doesn't mean that the guy in 60th is going to handle it fine. Yeah, good point. Only, only I mean, yeah. It only takes one or, or, or for that matter, you know, it's like, okay, everybody knows this jump is, is gnarly and, you know, and tricky or whatever, but like, let's look at the consequences. 
okay, we're hitting this jump at, you know, 40 miles an hour. And if we don't make it, you know, we're going headfirst into those trees or whatever the case may be, right? It's like, let's just, like, it can be hard and technical and advantageous for guys with main skills, but it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, be big consequence for if if or when things go wrong. Yeah, that's a that's a valid point. Exactly, it's the risk versus the reward or the skill set. You, I mean, the fastest guy is still going to win. The guy with the most skill is still going to win, but we do want to make it make it safe for everyone. That's a valid point. So let's switch gears a bit. I did ask you to think of some untold stories, and I hope you're not too old to remember some of them. And you've had a lot of years on the circuit, racing different bikes, traveling a million countries. There's got to be some that come to mind. I mean, you were hanging out with PD Palmer back in the day. You raced against Volios. You've got just some, you must have some crazy stories of things that happened before or after race. Not necessarily parties, but, you know, things people don't know. Hmm. Well, I mean, I got a pretty funny uh, special, you know, the, I, I used to call them the Special Olympics, you know, when we would jump the stairs and all that, all that kind of stuff. You know, I would challenge uh, everyone to, um, you know, to my little fun games. I, I remember at Lago de Garda, the festival there one year. Uh, actually, yeah, I was at, was at the festival. I was there with the Marzocchi guys. And uh, you remember Tom Rogers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so... Tom, you know, was a was a um, employee of Marzocchi and you know helped with our suspension. And we were, we were out like partying that night. And I remember it was like early. It was like four or five in the morning, and that we were staying at this really nice hotel. And there was uh, this little stream that went through the the property. And I was like, Tom, uh, and Richard Cunningham was there too. And I was like, Tom, let's. I go, Special Olympics, dude. Let's see if you could jump over this stream. And uh, he's like, all right. And so I went first, you know. Of course, I jumped across it. And then and he went and he made it across. But it was kind of like these the slope um, into the river and then out of the river on the side. And he, like, landed on the other side. And he just fell backwards into the river with all his clothes on. And... Uh, we're, I was just cracking up. I have some video of that somewhere. Like full movie where the guy's like teeter-totting and then he's like, and you're like, yes, yes, please fall. And he just falls back into the oh, water. Oh, dude. Just complete like backflop into the water. That's amazing. Uh, but I've got one that I remember and I think you still owe me some money. And maybe I'll put it out to the listeners. They can vote. If they're listening to this, they can send me a message and say, no, it's fair or it's not fair. So we're in Brazil. Not sure which evening, maybe after race and we had sushi and, and we're all there. Rennie's there, Cedric's there, and he's doing whatever he calls an upper decker in a toilet. But that's not part of the story. So we're walking home and somehow you challenge me and say, oh, I bet you can't carry Rennie. Like there was quite a, it was like, say, three or four blocks. And for the listeners at home, Nathan Rennie is a big unit. And you said I couldn't. I'm obviously skinny, so oh, you can't. Ca- I bet you can't carry him, you know, on your back for three blocks. And I said, oh, of course I can. You're all right, hundred bucks. I'm like, oh, you got it. And I'm thinking you're American. I'm still maybe three years in, not making much wage. I'm thinking hundred bucks U.S. back then. That's pretty good. I'll take this bet. 
So I get this behemoth of a man on my back, and I got it. And then you you whipped out money, and you gave me a hundred what real, the Brazilian money. And you were like, "Yeah, here's your hundred bucks." Oh, yeah. I was like, "No ways did I carry him for a hundred bucks, which was worth I don't know. <laughs> it was probably worth ten or twenty American dollars at the time." So yeah, I'm calling you out. I think you still owe me a bit of U.S. currency, you know. Mm hmm. I I think I I do remember that actually. Um, I suckered you. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like experience paid out there. You knew what you were doing with that bit. I remember. I actually remember racing Rennie down the beach. Yeah, this is a, race down yeah, the beach. yeah. Speaking of Special Olympics, so Lopes is you know you're world famous for this on the circuit. Like you will bet and race anyone and anything. But didn't Rennie take you? Or he's damn close. Like he's fast, considering he's a strong Dude. unit. Yeah, uh, I beat him. I remember. You know, I don't remember. We raced to a certain point down the beach. And I and I beat him, but barely. And I and he shocked the shit out of me because you know, again, Rennie was just a big dude, and he didn't look like you know a sprinter, but he had a lot of power. And uh, uh, yeah, whatever. You know, the race began, and he was beating me right from the get go. He was beating me, and I was like, "Holy shit, dude!" Like, and he just like you know he had whatever ten or fifteen feet on, on me. For the whole race, and then literally, I don't know, the last 10 or 20 meters, he just, he started fading, and I got him right at the end, but dude, I was like, And this is, this is no disrespect to Rennie at all, but if you could have been on that beach to witness, I mean, Rennie is the size of like a, for the, the um, Commonwealth people, like a pro, a rugby player prop, like he's a yeah. front row, or an NFL, like he's the whatever those front row grid dudes like he's huge and he yeah. was literally he looked like a proper sprinter but i remember that i mean speaking of that so for the listeners we're in brazil there's a world cup we've all flown down there from say canada most of us lost our bikes and we're there a little bit early which was cool and there's beautiful beach but yeah q lopes and all these special olympics or we you know i honestly was so stiff and sore the first day of practice because we spend a day or two jumping off things into the ocean, swimming competitions, running on the beaches, carrying each other around, go-karts. Like, I was a wreck come first day practice after Special Olympics. Oh, yeah, I remember go-karting there, too. Remember they, like, sold beer at the go-kart track. I remember I remember go-karting there with Kyle Strait, and, like, somebody, like, plowed into him on the side, and, it, and like, he got flung out of his go-kart on the track we were just like oh my god it was just anarchy there there was no rules There's they didn't no care. rules yeah he got flown straight out of a go-kart <laughs> yeah and they yeah. didn't care they just said you want to do it again they took our money and handed another beer or something and off you went yeah yeah oh, that's that so was some good times yeah. we're always looking for go-kart tracks i mean obviously everybody still probably goes to the go-kart track in uh mount st Anne, but if there was a go-kart track, that was that was good fun for us. Yeah, I mean, that's just <laughs> – yeah, I mean, I don't know what the saying is. You can take the guy out of the competition, but you can't take the competition out of the guy. Like when we went to the go-kart track, I mean, it was as serious as it was on a four-cross race or downhill. I know it was inside my head. I was like, I'm not getting beat if I can help it. So it was almost yeah. pretty dangerous. 
Lopes, what can you attest your longevity to in the sport? You know, sticking around that long, you know, you had, you've got this champion mindset that there's so much mental, but longevity to, to stay that long in the sport. I would say, um, not getting hurt too much. That's, that's a big thing, right? Like I think the older you get, the less you, uh, the, the, the longer it takes to recover. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I've always just really tried to ride within my limits, not, not get hurt and never really stop for that long a period of time. I mean, even when I was racing full time, like, you know, I would take a month off after the season, um, from the bike, but, but that was about it, you know, just always staying active and, and, uh, just just having fun with it really um like hey i'm you know what i'm doing later today i'm listening i'm going to sheep hill to to go do some dirt jumping with some boys so there you go at you coming on 49 in september or you're ready yeah 49 in september yep so there you go kids if you're not dirt jumping you're missing out and if you're not trying to dirt jump at 49 years old at sheep hills one of the most famous dirt jump spots in the world. So that's what you're doing. You're just challenging yourself to still keep that spark and that 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 skill alive. Yeah, I like it, man. It's fun, you know. I I mean, if I don't dirt jump for a few months and then I go, you know, at the beginning it's always like, oh man, these jumps look steep, you know. And then you just hit them a few times, and they're always easier than you think they're gonna be. But uh, that's. Like I said, you know, you don't want to stop. If you stop, if you, you know, if I stop dirt jumping right now for a couple of years, I might not get it back. I might just be like, ah, I'm cool with it. And then I don't want to do it anymore because I don't want to get hurt or something. But I think if you just keep doing it, like it, it's pretty hard to lose. You know, it's like riding a bike. As they say, you just keep doing it. You won't forget how to do it if you, if, uh, you know, you just still have that confidence. But, the, but, I mean, the dirt jumps are changing. I mean, they're a little little different. I mean, I think that's one reason I like going to Sheep, too. It's a little bit old school. Uh, every once in a while, I'll go to some other spots where they're steep. And, yeah, those are a little, little scarier at the beginning. But, um, yeah, still doing it. Did a three-hour uh, ride last night with the Rads. And, uh, yeah, now going dirt jumping today. So, you know, trying to. Trying to still do it, have fun. Still living the dream. Well, there you go. That's consistency for the listeners or the, if there's some youngsters. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to help the, the, the people that aspire to improve their riding, their mindset, get some inspiration from someone like you. So I think consistency came out of there, consistency and ride within your limits. I find that so key. I mean, other sports, people are just always going for lessons or investing in a coach and sometimes mountain biking. I know you do some coaching. They don't always, I don't know if it's the ego that gets in the way or they don't realize how dangerous it is, but they don't seem to go for coaching enough or early enough for a sport that is so awesome. But if they get hurt early, they might just be put off. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, and you know, for me, I feel like I, I feel like I uh, have a good, good audience of older people. You know, it's kind of, I, I kind of look at other sports, you know, it's, whatever, let's say it's basketball, you know, and there's some 40 year old, you know, professional still playing basketball. It's like, that's, that's my guy, you know, just cause I can relate to him cause he's closer to my age. So I kind of feel like I get a lot of that in mountain biking. I get a lot of older guys who, 
who reach out to me or like say, oh man, you're, you're inspirational, dude. You're still killing it at your age or, you know, want lessons maybe from me versus, you know, a younger 20 year old. Cause maybe I'm more relatable to them. So, you know, yeah, I think you, you gotta, if you're learning later in your years, you got to take it a, a little bit slower and a little, you got to be maybe a little more calculated than, you know, you and I learned how to jump and stuff when we were little kids. So just kind of, Obviously, the older we get, it's just more natural. But uh, it's amazing how many guys, you know, love riding mountain bikes that are older, but, um, you know, don't know how to do some real basic stuff. And I think get away with quite a bit just because bikes are so good these days. But as you know, um, that's only going to last so long before it's going to bite you in the ass. Yeah, man, it's it's not if you're going to crash, it's when. So, I mean, that's cool. I think you are an inspiration to the older and the, the younger generation. What about some parting words to to that generation that is looking up uh, to be inspired and, and wanting to maybe make a career of it? Or like you say, improve their riding. What's some parting words to them? I'd say to the younger generation, man, just, just have fun, you know, like enjoy it because, you know, it's – I think when you're in it, you know, it – you don't really think about like how long it's it's going to last until you're kind of towards the end of it. Then you're like, oh man, you know, I don't got much longer. You know, like I'm sure, you know, somebody like, I don't know, how old is Nino now? He's probably what, 33? 30, yeah, 33 uh, 30, Yeah, yeah. 32, 33, 33 maybe. Yeah. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure he could go for, you know, another five years if he wanted, but you know, he'll probably like mentally want to check out a little bit before then, you know, and it's like a few years ago, he probably wasn't thinking about it. And now he's probably at the age where he's like, you know, I got a few more years. And But, but it's great though, because he said the same thing as you. We had him on you and, and he, and he was totally preaching and, and I ride in the Vietnamese in South Africa. And I'm amazed at how much fun he's still having and trying to do whips and all that stuff. And that's clearly like a, He's, he is passionate about the sport. And I don't think you can get through the training without learning what's fun and keeping it fun. And, and, and I think that's brilliant parting words. Lopes, where can everyone follow along and, and see what you're up to these days? Uh, you know, I got, I got the old IG, just Brian Lopes. It's my IG. Uh, same on Twitter. I have a Facebook, but I, I, I pretty much just stick to the IG. Is try not to... Try not to get too wrapped up in too many. There's too many different social media. I, I, yeah. Well, you're already calling it the IG. I mean, that sounds like young. Is that what your son Mavericks taught you? I don't yeah. even know it's called the IG. I know, right? Well, Instagram. There you go. How's that? That's that's pretty much the only thing that I really go on uh, regularly. But uh, find me there. I got a website. Um, about it really just uh yeah out here in laguna beach overcast not on lockdown well we kind of are on lockdown but not not crazy we've actually never been like full lockdown here in laguna as far as mountain biking because the trails have always technically been open oh that's awesome well lopes um it's been awesome to catch up and uh, i hope we can do more of these and dig into all sorts of topics so thanks so much for your time and, and inspiring the youth so yeah yeah thanks andrew thanks for having me and uh shoot it's been a while since i've been to south africa so 
Hey. Gotta, gotta make another trip out there one of these days. It's long overdue. You're always welcome. Lopes, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, buddy. Cheers. And there you have it. That's another episode of Moving the Needle podcast. Thanks so much for downloading this episode. Cheers to Brian Lopes for coming on the call. Man, he has achieved a lot in his career, and it's crazy to see what he's still doing at 49 years of age. So no excuses for any of us out there. So guys, till the next one, please subscribe, give us a review if you haven't, share it with a friend if you think you can benefit from it. I see all those messages you send me as well. So guys, until the next one, stay well.